I read somewhere that the Nazis had, this is very, it shocked me when I read about it, had some kind of uh, a simple metal object like to crack the nuts made industrially for concentration camps as a special form of no torture. Way. To crack. Yeah. Isn't this horrible? Okay. Then I wanted to check this. Like, so that I will not be accused of invention. So I went to Google and put on ball crashers, crashing testicles. And you know what I got? Some 10 sites today for masochists, they are industrially produced. They cost very nicely two to three hundred dollars. I hope you didn't test them. You know. <laughs> no, no, no. But you put your testicles in and then you can regulate how much uh, your balls are squeezed. Then you keep up at the... Uh, on the side, holes for needles if you want to torture yourself more. This is, I think, the world we live in. That uh, what uh, half a century ago, a little bit more, was a terrifying object of torture. Now you can buy it, it's advertised. And we live in a world where you can do that consensually, but you cannot call somebody a wrong name. That's you are suspended. No, we live in a crazy world. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, with Pins the Podcat, who does not want to be disturbed. Here with the introduction to Robinson's Podcast, number 109. And this is a very special Robinson's Podcast, 109, not only because it's the only Robinson's Podcast, number 109, but because this episode is with Slavoj Žižek, who is International Director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities at the University of London, visiting professor at New York University and a senior researcher at the University of Ljubljana's Department of Philosophy. So it is quite hard for me to put my finger on just what it is that we talk about in this episode. Uh, it would be very difficult for me to do so without repeating the entire episode. Uh, but I say this in my in our conversation, I think, or at least something to this effect. But Slavoj's capacity for interesting and insightful free association, <laughs> free association is not only a psychoanalyst dream, but also has to be unmatched across humanity. I think we started out with the intention to talk about why we uh, humans or humans in general need psychoanalysis today, but then it quickly became a lot of other things as well. We touch on wokeness, uh, falling in love, quantum theory, and the ontological openness of reality, curb your enthusiasm, uh, Nazis in World War III, and a hundred other things. But podcast aside, this was absolutely one of the most fun conversations or hours, hour and a halfs that I've ever had. Slavoj is an incredible talent. He's a brilliant guy in so many domains. And I not only learned a lot from him, but I hope to learn a lot more from him in the future. Now, please leave comments and likes and subscribe and Speaking of the absurd, I eat a pint of ice cream every day, so you can join me for that on Twitch or YouTube at Robinson Eats. And now, without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with the man, the myth, the legend, Slavoj Žižek. 
as I mentioned uh, when we decided on a topic, just to set some context before we begin, when you say that we need psychoanalysis today more than ever, am I right? And I think I'm quite right in assuming that you mean psychoanalysis as a form of societal or cultural criticism rather than a form of personal therapy. Yes, although I would not underestimate psychoanalysis as a form of social therapy, you know why? Because what was clear already with Freud and what we should always bear in mind today is that the archetypal model of psychoanalysis, as it were, it's not, it's not let's say, you or me, okay, to avoid embarrassing terms, I will say me. Let's say I have certain problems with my sexuality and uh, whatever, impotence and so on. And then psychoanalysis enters and uh, enables me to overcome these obstacles if there are unconscious prohibitions to make them explicit or to get rid of oppressive authorities, paternal authority, whatever, so that at the end I can enjoy. But this is not flight. Freud is today, especially by feminists, often accused of patriarchal bias. But Freud makes it very clear, already Freud, that today's paradox, the paradox of a society in which we live, and here psychoanalysis, not exactly as Freud put it, but what through can help us. Isn't the paradox today, and this intrigues me, that uh, uh, we live officially in permissive societies, different types of permissiveness, but how this permissiveness, instead of enabling open, pleasurable life, produces its own version of even worse oppression and regulation. Let me give you two, this is my basic point. Uh, Lacan, Jacques Lacan, my teacher, already dead, uh, pointed out how from the psychoanalytic standpoint, uh, uh, Dostoevsky's famous phrase, which is today quoted by many new fundamentalists, I think, even, I think even the one who is not simply a fundamentalist, Jordan Peterson, and so on. If there is no God, then everything is permitted. My co conclusion following Lacan, Lacan says this, is that it's exactly the opposite. If there is no God, then you end up in a situation where everything is prohibited. And the opposite, if there is God for you subjectively, directly, in the sense that you think you can act like an instrument of God, then everything is, then everything is permitted. Two very simple extreme opposite examples. Isn't this the logic of today's so-called 
religious fundamentalism. In all religious fundamentalist regimes, yes, they appear to have many, many prohibitions, but the basic fact is, if you act as an instrument of God, then, since your acts are for you condoned, even enjoined by God himself, you can do basically everything. On the other hand, the true intrigue for me is uh, permissiveness, you know, this obsession with overcoming obstacles, like uh, in some forms of wokeness, me too, I know, know they are not the same, but I generalize. The idea is permissivity, all marginal sexual stance, uh, sexual positions and so on should be permitted, solicited, and the big enemy is paternal or patriarchal, whatever you call it, oppression. But what do we get as the final result of this uh, permissiveness? We get, and I think it's a deep necessity in this, we get political correctness, which uh, I don't disagree with its goals against racism, sexism, and so on. I disagree with its form. It is formally, of course, against oppression, but the way it functions socially, it's an extremely authoritarian, divisive, oppressive way. Uh, what interests me is this, that it de facto imposes a certain set of prohibitions, you shouldn't use this word, you shouldn't do this, do that, and uh, I'm not only following the usual line, which is that uh, uh, that uh, that uh, political uh, correctness is too rigorous, oppressive. No, it's at the same time very arbitrary, like all of a sudden certain phrase, certain words, whatever, certain acts become uh, become uh, oppressive, become, are denounced as oppressive, they are de facto prohibited, and the logic is extremely severe. Like a couple of people we know, I will not even enumerate them, lose their career for saying, writing something maybe tasteless, maybe wrong, but not so uh, horrible. So what interests me is this logic of how permissiveness returns, turns into its opposite. What do I mean by divisiveness? Ah, I mean this, as many leftists have noted, that uh, what the left needs today is large-scale solidarity. Join on what unites us. For example, let me give you a concrete example. All these tensions about abortion today. I'm totally pro-abortion, to avoid any misunderstanding. But what I would have done uh, is not to think how to dismiss, attack just those who are against abortion. I would 
try with the hope that in the long term they will be converted to find some common space. I follow here Bernie Sanders, who said in a wonderful way years ago that our target should not be this middle-of-the-road Democrats, but Trump's voters. You know, like my approach would be this one to uh, uh, an anti-abortionist. Okay, I agree. Abortion is not a nice thing. But first, at the level of facts, are we aware? I'm sure uh, 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 this is how it is in Slovenia. Probably it's also in the United States that anti-abortionists portray the woman the woman who wants an abortion as a rich career, uh, upper-class career-oriented woman who just wants to pursue her uh, profession and so on. No, the majority of abortions are, at least in my own country, Slovenia, it's well documented, are poor working-class women who live on the edge of poverty, who already have three, four children and so on and so on. So my approach to abortionists would be let's find a common platform which is better health care, better support for children, education and so on and so on. You know, the left uh, the left that's why I think this chief political correctness is even reactionary because it introduces divisions into the left. Instead of opening up the space for united left, or some basic issues, it introduces the logic of suspicion. How did you mean that joke, but didn't you mean it wrongly, and so on? Another problem I have here, and this brings us, <laughs> sorry, closer to, finally, I didn't lose my thread. Don't be afraid. Closer to psychoanalysis is... Uh, you know where I see the patronizing attitude of the standard form forms that are different and of political correctness. This uh, use of the term, this is already what I find extremely suspicious. Use of the term pain hurt, like you may hurt people with this. Yes, but I think that in in contrast to ordinary life, well, where uh, we should be more careful, I admit it, and so on and so on, isn't academic life precisely a space where you should be allowed to say very problematic things? It's not a safe space. It's a space where you can openly debate what? What makes our outer, normal life, non-academic reality unsafe? And here, another problem that I have is, many people have noticed this, uh, this lack of refinement, irony, and so on. Let me give you an example. Did you, are you from time to time looking, uh, curb your enthusiasm by Larry Day? I wish I were. I watched the first season many years ago and absolutely loved it. I know, I know. I'm also don't have time to go through. But do you remember, was this already in the first season, one wonderful episode where uh, at a party in his home, uh, 
een oud Auschwitz survivor en de survivor op de disc survival reality tv show. Debate who suffered more. And of course, because it's a comedy, the reality TV survivor wins. He suffered more. And people exploded. This is making fun of Auschwitz and so on. I think, no, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, this works as a joke. Why? Precisely because we all know that Auschwitz was the true horror. That to compare the two is absurd. The true obscenity would have been, I think, to have the Auschwitz survival survivor then it's win, no longer a joke. Which is obviously true, but it would have meant that you can even compare them. You know, you already concede too much. You see, and I fear a threat for all these uh, ambiguities and so on. My experience from everyday life is that we can have very brutal, even they may appear to be racist jokes, which are a form of solidarity even, in Europe at least. When I meet a friend, not just from ex-Yugoslavia, from Germany, blah, blah, whatever, we, the only reliable sign of real closeness or friendship is that you share an obscenity. You insult him, apparently he insults you. If you take this away, you end up in a terrifying universe. On the other hand, there are even civilizations who know how to do it. I think it's mostly United Kingdom and Japan, where speaking in a very respectful, polite way, they nonetheless do it so that you can feel extremely patronizing aggressivity and so on and so on. I, so, but let me go and then I will allow you to ask questions. My favorite uh, example. Uh, uh, today, and here I am addressing also your potential public. That's what I wanted to say in the introduction. Uh, uh, do you know that now we have uh, in public debate about sex, gender, and so on, two opposed positions, but they share some basic stances, I claim. On the one hand, so-called, I don't think how to call them, sex biologists, who claim, okay, let's not play cultural games, gender socially constructed, the basic thing is still sex as biologically determined. On the other hand, we have, I even don't know uh, uh, how to call them, trans ideology, those who think sex is simply a social construct, a matter of a personal choice. I claim that this opposition is false. In false in the sense that, of course, sex 
your sexual identity on purpose. I don't want to distinguish between sex and gender. That your sexual identity, your sexual practices have some base, not not base in the sense of firm foundation, but they relate to something which obviously involves a biological dimension, but of course they re-elaborate, change it completely. So I totally agree that our, in this sense, our sexual identities are socially constructed. But my reproach is that often with those woke feminists, trans, and so on, they are way too subjectivist in the sense that they identify social construction with how you feel, does it hurt you or not. They, in other words, although they usually, as a rule, reject psychoanalysis as uh, as uh, 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 as uh, 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 pre-feminist, reliant of paternal authority, 19th century, and so on, the type of subject to which trans ideologists often, not all of them, I have many friends there, refer, is a simple pre-Freudian subject who, deep in himself, herself, itself, whatever you book, and I agree with this, who deep in themselves, know what they want, they know what hurts them, they know what they really are, and we should just, and this is not a biological fact, it's their symbolic construct, social identity, and we just have to allow them to become what they are. Again, not biologically, but at the level of their identity. Now I think, and here psychoanalysis enters, something is missing here. We don't have just biology and then these subjective choices and so on. I agree that our sexual identities are socially constructed, but they are constructed, here the lesson of psychoanalysis enters, in a very self-contradictory, antagonist way, Mostly, you are not even aware of how it works. The basic lesson of Freud is simply our subjectivity is split subjectivity. Often, we think that we want one thing, we really desire another thing. Often, we, this is the basic lesson of psychoanalysis, often our desire is perverted. We enjoy something that we find at the same time disgusting, or the most perverted example, often evoked by Judith Butler herself. The basic mechanism of psychoanalysis is that the prohibition of the desire turns over into a desire for prohibition. These are classical obsessional symptoms. You have rituals to keep at bay what you are afraid to be, but then you begin to enjoy this very oppression. So here for me is 
a classical example of how what both poles, trans ideology and biologists, determinist ideology, what they miss. What they miss is precisely the dimension in between, which is the topic of psychoanalysis. Can I conclude? Maybe you know it, and then rather give you all that with another example that I love. You know why I love it? Maybe you know it because it concerns my own, as your beloved President Trump would have put it, ex-president. I hope not the future one. Shitkol uh, of a country, Slovenia. You know that Freud uh, had permanent contact with Eduardo Weiss and. Italian psychoanalyst who worked in Trieste, close to Slovenia. And Eduardo Weiss, Italian psychoanalyst, asked Freud for an advice. He said, I have two patients with the same symptom, total impotence. One is an upper level, very cultivated Italian who is impotent because his wife died and she feels somehow responsible for his wife's death and superego pressure you are prohibited to enjoy. Then Freud sa uh, Weiss says to Freud, then there is a Slovene guy, totally corrupted, incredibly corrupted, 20 years old, lying, cheating. Freud, uh, Weiss discovered that even uh, he cheated even with psychoanalysis. His father of this corrupted Slovene gave him some money to pay the analyst. But the Slovene guy told his father a higher sum of money so that he profited from this and so on. I mean, now this is, the first case is too simple. So what? Yeah, yeah, you overcome this, uh, you somehow through analysis convince the patient, the Italian, that his, uh, um, his impotence is psychologically caused, you redeem him, you allow him to get rid of his guilt feeling, he will be again able to have so-called normal sexual life. But the paradox of Slovene is that he was practically without any ethical ideas, totally permissive, doing whatever he wanted, and he was totally impotent. And you know what Freud says? Freud says, this Slovene is so corrupted that our psychoanalytic art cannot yet cope with people like that. I think that this is where we are today. In this precise paradox, how uh, uh, permissiveness itself leads to growing, rising, impotence, frigidity, and so on, and so on. At this level, I think psychoanalysis is needed at different levels, even. Uh, at the level of not only, as people think, of understanding today's uh, uh, religious fundamentalism, not only at understanding how well-intentioned feminist actions like Me Too, which I think I totally support, but you know who is the founder of Me Too? Tarana Burke, no? And you know that she now attacked these new forms of Me Too. Why did they go wrong? Another thing where psychoanalysis is needed, especially 
psychoanalytic uh, theory of, as opposed to oppression, repression, of not denial, but disavowal, fetishist disavowal. Its formula is, je sais bien me comment, you know, I know very well what the truth is, but nonetheless, I still think there is something in it, and so on and so on. And we found this largely in numerous examples, like uh, the typical anti-Semitic guy today will say, I know there are nice Jews, intelligent, I know many of them, I know, and then comes, but still, there is something strange in them, or whatever, you know. Racism functions like this today. What I'm saying is that today, as me and my colleagues in Slovenia develop, we are uh, in an even more complex situation. It's no longer, I know very well, but it's, I know very well, and so what? I go on doing the same. You know what was the model for me? Look, two problems are today not repressed. Uh, take uh, the Glasgow conference two years ago against global warming. They were saying all the right things in principle, not in details. Like, you know, global warming is a phenomenon to which to cope with, with it. We will have to change radically our entire society and so on and so on, economic, political, social level. But... Uh, it was already said in a way which included that nothing will follow. This is what I call, following the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk, cynical reason. It's no longer I'm doing it, although I don't know what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing, something horrible, but so what, still I'm doing it. And this is so shocking for me. In art domain, since I see some paintings behind you, this is art. Uh, I'm so, I don't want to get anything with this big uh, art biennales, Venice, Castle, and so on. Because I sometimes look at their program. It's even extremely vulgar colonialism, anti colonialism, uh, Marxism. They usually begin with, we are all caught in the circulation of capital, we should fight it, we should decolonize our blah, blah, all that. But precisely as such, this art biennales fits perfectly modern capitalism. So it's a very strange situation where you say the truth, but at the same time you render the truth ineffective. It doesn't matter. It's not enough to publicly tell the truth. You, and this is also a big lesson of psychoanalysis, that in his early years, Freud thought, okay, I explain your symptom. The moment you know it, the symptom will disappear. No, Freud got instantly in a couple of years there, in uh, around 1905, I think, into this that no, Truth cannot be directly declared. There is a way to tell the truth which is the deepest lie. Truth must be said in a socially efficient way. And this today in our permissiveness is becoming very 
difficult. I talked to Mark Maigot. Now, please, grill me. <laughs> no, I have uh, plenty of questions and comments because there's a lot there. But one thing, I mean, you mentioned the word hurt being used a lot these days. And here the word in the United States, I don't know what it is for you, what it's like for you, but here the word violence is quite popular for, for speech deemed offensive. But using it, I mean, it trivializes actual violence in the way that seriously treating the, the survivor's story on Curb Your Enthusiasm as a survivor in the same way as the Auschwitz survivor trivializes the Auschwitz experience. And then I was also struck by your example concerning obscenities, because this idea of sorry, being... Obscenities. Yeah. Sorry? No, sorry, I got the okay, word. Yeah. This idea of being it. unable yeah, to yeah. share obscenities makes it difficult to make friends these days, since these jokes or phrases, which were once taken and understood as pretense, are now prohibited. But in a certain way, it also strengthens old bonds because old friends are the only people you can speak like that with. And then uh, the, the last thing that really comes to mind is returning to this discussion of permissiveness. And something I'm missing, but I'm sorry, maybe I'm just being obtuse or maybe you could just make it more explicit, but is how psychoanalysis explicitly figures into your analysis of this situation involving permissiveness turning into prohibition where this idea of God and permissiveness arises out of distinctly psychoanalytical, like Lacanian theory. This last question, if I may, very briefly, now I will try to discipline myself. No, don't be uh, disciplined. First, this last. No, no, no. What I mean is that Freud, when he advised Eduardo Weiss, drop that Slovene, was not aware of his own great discovery, which is precisely that, you know, one idea we have to get rid of when we speak about the unconscious, and Freud wasn't always clear about it. The unconscious is not like Jung, Carl Gustav Jung imagined it, a deep inner truth at which you should arrive so that then you learn about your true self. Unconscious is a domain of dirty, inconsistent fantasies, desires, lies, fundamental lies, and so on. <laughs> the unconscious is not a deep truth about yourself. There is, I don't want to lose time very briefly, there is another wonderful anecdote by Freud she visited some, some, uh, some caves in southern Slovenia called Skopsian caves, which are terrifying. All this world beneath the earth rock, it's terrifying. There is even a rumor that Dante visited that place. It's a real rumor based on some letters, and he got the idea of hell from, from there. But then something miraculous happened to Freud. You know who, whom she met there in the deepest depth of hell? Karl Neuger, who was the German, uh, sorry, Austrian politician, mayor of Vienna, the main influence of Hitler, extremely anti-Semitic, the proto-right-wing anti-Semitic 
populist. And the beauty in German language is that Lüge, Lüge means lie. He met the fundamental lie there. This is, this is, uh, this is the deep uh, message. From here, I come to violence. You know, uh, the basic lesson of psychoanalysis is that uh, violence is, again, a very ambiguous notion. For example, when we say don't be violent, don't hurt people, but I'm sorry to say, and I'm not saying this just as a Freudian, but as a Hegelian or whatever, for most of us, truth hurts. It's extremely painful. So, uh, yes, at least in theory, it's another question, how do you do this in daily life? In this sense, our duty as theorists is to hurt people. My witness will be here, somebody whom even the liberals like, George Orwell, who say freedom of speech or press, I don't know, is to be able, allowed to tell people what they don't want to hear. If they are not allowed to do this, don't speak about freedom. And I think that here, uh, the political correctness uh, often uh, misses this point. For example, I quoted this in one of my texts, how I don't know which university, maybe Cambridge or another college in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, trans people organized protest, protests because they invited uh, certain anthropologists, biologists, I don't know, lady, who was in practical matters totally pro-trans, no problem there, but just in theory, her point was that biology nonetheless plays a certain role. Your sexual identity is not simply socially constructed. Now, again, in practical political acts, he was totally on the right side. And uh, what shocked me is that the reaction of the trans community was not only to protest her giving a cause, but they even, at, at, for those two hours when this lady gave a talk, they opened up two, three safe rooms with, with uh, uh, cakes and tea, so that those for whom it would be too traumatic to hear this why didn't they, I'm here an old-fashioned rational leftist, why didn't they go there and confront her with calm, rational argumentation? It can easily be said. I am not here to avoid a misunderstanding uh, 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 biological determinism. Jacques Lacan put it clearly that a woman, biological woman, who was identified by birth as a woman, can well symbolically have a masculine identity and the other way around, and there are possibilities of third transpositions and so on and so on. Yes, all this is totally open. I'm just saying 
don't identify this position with simple personal feeling of free choice. Why not? Because, you know, there are external choices, like, sorry for vulgarity, you go to a, you go to a, to a, to a, you go to a store to buy your dessert and then you say, oh my God, what should I choose? Uh, uh, strawberry cake or cheesecake or chocolate cake? Yes, but your gender, sexual, whatever you want, I on purpose confuse them, uh, uh, identity is not such a choice. It is a choice of what you are. It's a much more radical choice. And these choices are usually unconscious. Not in any mythical, irrational sense. But, okay, I'm testing you, not you personally, an abstract you. If you fall really passionately in love, I claim it's never a choice in the sense of, okay, let's say, I'm sorry for this bias, you are hetero. Uh, let's say I see those ladies there, I like her legs, I like her laughter, I like her mind. Now let me do, uh, 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 let me uh, see if she has two classes, three, or she wins, and so on and so on. That's not love. I claim there is never a present moment when you fall in love. All of a sudden, you discover that you already are in love. The decision is free subjective, but it happens retroactively. And my point is that such radical decisions uh, are even mostly not experienced as free decisions, but as faith. I spoke in Slovenia with some uh, 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 men who operated themselves surgically to become women and vice versa, blah, blah. And they didn't simply tell me the story of, oh, so happy, now I can be who I am. Uh, yes, they, this was their story, but they emphasized the traumatic aspect of it. They told me they suffered terribly. You know, the procedure surgical is not so simple. It's not chop chop, you are two, uh, two hours under uh, uh, in narcosis and so on, and then up you awaken what you want to be. It's a terribly painful process. Many times it ends up in suicide and so on. No, no, this is not an argument against and totally for it. What I'm just saying that freedom at its highest has this form. Because if there is a thing that is free, it's love. You fall in love freely. Nobody can order you fall in love. But precisely as such, when you discover that you are in love, it's a fate. It can be painful. So it's quite logical to say that love is for me an extremely violent thing in the sense of disturbing, perturbing your everyday welfare. I, I often, to provoke a little bit public, quote this example. Let's say you are a normal guy, uh, even bisexually, whatever you want. My point is not sexuality here directly. 
and you are not in love. And you have a plan, you have a job, if you are lucky, in the evening you meet with friends, you have one night stand here and there, you make these dead experiments, blah, 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 and then you passionately fall in love. This is the most violent thing, almost psychologically, that can happen to you. You know what this means. You neglect friends, you neglect your job, your, your, all your daily life is thrown off balance. So such things are, for me, under quotation marks, a good, good violence. There is something extremely violent in love. And it's here, I don't want to be racist West against East, because in the East you also have this, but here I see the difference in general terms between this kind of violent personal love, love for another person, and this general Buddhist love, you know, like this Buddha smile, I love all living beings, and so on. No. This personal, passionate love is extremely exclusive. No way out. And again, this is where psychoanalysis can, this is where psychoanalysis can help. They, uh, what if what you unconsciously have chosen freely, it's not biological fate, but let's say what you somehow through complex unconscious processes, have chosen as your identity and which you now experience as faith, faith in the sense of my life is ruined, I cannot live without this, I have to do this. Uh, 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 what I'm saying is that such, precisely such, I would almost say, metaphysical dimension decision for love is getting, to put it very mildly, unfashionable today. Let me conclude, my God, how much I talk, with an example which may amuse you. I was uh, in Argentina years ago, and I was told a wonderful story there. You know, the big decision in psychoanalysis is somebody comes to you and you have decide to decide what is pathological or not, like, are the symptoms of this person something that deserves full analysis or not? Here, of course, social norms, prejudices intervene. But they told me a wonderful detail in Argentina that till, although they were always very promiscuous, but nonetheless, at basic, till like 1960s, if you, man or woman, were uh, 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 very promiscuous, jumping from one partner to the other, it was considered pathology. What you are afraid of, why are you jumping, it was to be analyzed. Do you know that today I was told, it's nice detail, how the symbolic order changes. If you are totally faithful to your partner, it's considered a pathological fixation. It has to be cured. Let's go to a psychonia and you should do psychoanalysis to discover why are you there are so many other women or men, why are you so fixated on that one and so on and so on, you know. So again, you see my 
my uh, position. Uh, love can hurt. Love is violent, but in some sense, things like love or dedication to political work, to theory, without such things, I don't think life is worth living. Here is the sad lesson of psychoanalysis. I talk too much, let's go on. I will try to keep my work and be short. No, uh, please, please don't be any shorter. Also, don't apologize for the vulgarity. You mentioned uh, before we started that you're not interested in psychoanalysis yourself, but I, I love the free association. I'm sure you've been told this many times, but you're probably uh, a psychoanalyst. But what's the paradox? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. The first lesson of Freud is that the term three associations is totally ironical. It means it's exact opposite. Free associations means precisely that they are not really free. They come from the unconscious. The four... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's precisely totally determined by your unconscious prejudices and so on and so on, you know. But, you know, can I give you, it will amuse our readers. I learned now from a well-known Slovene theater director, she's a woman but a big star in Germany, that she now staged Antigone in Munich, and she called me because she partially also used my version of my rewriting of Antigone. And she told me that at the beginning, when she met the actors to avoid any misunderstanding, she asked each actor, how do you feel? How should I call you? He, she, they, and so on. And here things become ridiculous. You know what answer she got from all of them? You should ask us this every day, because today I feel a man, tomorrow I may feel a woman, and so on. Okay, it's nice, but I, I think that to, to reduce sexual identity to just the, less, the least painful thing, what immediately gives you pleasure, and so on and so on, is to make the whole thing ridicule. Isn't the best argument against these trans people who really change, even surgically, their identity? It's not about pleasure. They are ready to 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 go through terrifying pain to do this. I just so my problem is that terms like violence and hurting somebody are, I think, not. How should I put it? Not instruments of truth. You know what I mean. They can be positive or negative. For, it, for example, when a people is oppressed, of course they have the right to become violent. Occupiers always are always for peace. Why? Because peace means you can calmly dominate the occupied uh, country and so on. And even hurt. At what level do you hurt somebody? I mean, the point is that it, it gets complex immediately the moment you 
introduce or take seriously Freud's idea of the unconscious of the divided subject and so on and so on. Returning for a moment to your uh, involuntary associations, it's often it's often actually pretty difficult to interview people who with very with very active minds in this sense. But your your associations, obviously, they're very entertaining, but they're also, I mean, extremely insightful. And you mentioned Jordan Peterson uh, earlier. I don't know if you heard this exchange between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris about the nature of truth uh, many years ago, where they were arguing about what truth is, and it, it no, took I'm an sorry. hour or two. No, no. But even if it's not scientific in some rigorous sense, everything you said about love earlier, a few minutes ago, it struck me as true in a very meaningful sense of the word, even if it's not something that uh, could be scientifically verified. But why, why should it be opposed to science too? To, uh, uh, because people often characterize me as a, okay, because I speak the way I speak as a crazy postmodernist and so on. No, I take science extremely seriously. I definitely don't think in a postmodern way, that's the radical position of somebody like Michel Foucault and some others, that science that each discourse intersubjective exchange or space of meaning uh, has produces its own truth and has its own truth criteria. So brought to the end, this logic means why should scientific truth be universalized as the only proof against, uh, let's say, religious superstitions or whatever, private wisdom. You have different discourses which define truth differently, but every notion of truth is bound to a certain discourse. I don't agree with this. Whatever Chomsky would have thought about things about me here, I believe totally in scientific truth. And I am even writing now a new text on, on quantum physics. What I try to do there is not to do this nightmare of, you know, there is fashionable with some new age guys to say quantum physics is, 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 is uh, confirming that there is no objective reality that we cause. No, I want to read quantum physics in a strict materialist way. But nonetheless, there is a problem here, not a problem of non-materialism, but the problem of how we have to redefine, how should we call it, the, all these wave oscillations, the quantum yeah, sphere. the wave function. Because, yeah, the wave function. For example, as we all know, uh, Niels Bohr totally avoided this problem, even prohibited it. As some critic wonderfully defined uh, Bohr's position, if you ask him, but what is the nature of reality? His answer is basically, shut up and calculate. <laughs> Don't raise these questions. But today, especially, I think it's extremely important with the three quantum physics experimenters who got Alain Aspect and others, to others who got the Nobel Prize. Now this uh, uh, 
uh, uh, this uh, quantum communication faster than uh, light between different points is empirically fully right, confirmed. So we cannot, we cannot avoid this question. We have to ask, or even with, sorry, with, let's say, quantum computers. Obviously, we can even at some level manipulate, use quantum processes. So the question is legitimate. What happens with our ordinary notion of reality? But I'm not saying it's just a subjective illusion and so on and so on. No, our notion of reality has to be changed precisely to save materialism, to redefine it is more radically materialism, although it may sound as if it is, let's call it, materialism without matter. But I lost your thread. Your question was not this, was ah, science. Yes, so I am totally scientific here. I just, you know where, as a philosopher, I hope this will say something to our public. I defend not even psychoanalysis, but just a deeper social analysis. My ordinary example, which I used often, let's hope, uh, uh, probably you know it, let's hope I'm not repeating myself too much for our public. Imagine uh, that we are two guys talking in Germany in 35 about Jews. Let's say you are open towards, we are both Germans, but you are open towards Jews, you are uh, condemning anti-Semitism, and I am I'm heroically taking this role, <laughs> not that I'm anti-Semitic. This is where I think things get complicated, not in the sense that it's subjective, but not in the postmodern sense, but in this simple sense. If we remain at the level of immediate facts. Then I, I think we miss the true point of anti-Semitism. For example, me as anti-Semitic, I could easily say, but listen, and this was true, in not in 35 till 33, you know that 60-70% of art critics in Germany were Jews. 60% of lawyers were Jews, and so on, and so on. So I will say, doesn't nonetheless anti-Semitism have some ground? Then you can put the opposite arguments you know. But my point here is that the moment you, if you truly want to be anti-anti-Semitic, the moment you accept this logic, just about the factual truth of what we are debating, you have already sold your, uh, your soul to the devil. Because I claim the true question is not why am I, or the Nazis in general, anti-Semitic. The true question is why do I, as a Nazi, I'm sure some idiot will now quote <laughs> this and claim that I contest publicly. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be on your Wikipedia Why page. Why does, and 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why does a Nazi so desperately need the, the figure of the Jew to maintain his worldview, his system? And here, I believe it's not as simple as that in the basic Marxist thesis. The fundamental premise of fascism is that society is in itself a harmonious body where different parts, which means different social groups, different social classics, uh, sorry, classes, harmoniously cooperate. And that then uh, antagonism, class struggle, is introduced by an external intruder, in this case, Jews. So the point is to maintain this. That's why they need a Jew to explain how come that we live in a society full of antagonisms. The answer is because of the Jews. And this was Hitler's big, okay, it was before him anti-Semitism, but nonetheless, Hitler's big rhetorical trick. In late 20s, when the crisis exploded in Germany, it was horrible for ordinary conservative people. They lost their money for retirement, they lost their jobs, they saw society as penetrated by modern art, which meant nothing to them, by sexual promiscuity and so on. And Hitler came and provided a simple answer, a plot in two senses, plot like complot, Jewish plot, and plot like plot, a consistent narrative. You listen to Hitler and say, oh my God, now things are clear to me. So you see what I'm saying. To go to the end, I quote Lacan, Jacques Lacan, who somewhere says something simple but very deep. If I'm a husband and have a wife, and if I am pathologically jealous of her, like, oh my God, is she sleeping with other men and so on, my jealousy is pathological, that's a nice point. Even if my wife is really sleeping with other men. And in this sense, I'm not saying that the accusations against Jews are true. I'm just saying this is not, this is not the core of the matter. The core is why do Jews need the figure of the Jew? And Again, this is what we always should ask, especially with violent religious fundamentalisms. What are they escaping from? Uh, it's not enough, again, to prove that they are factually wrong. Because if uh, I, I had once, it was an incredible experience, a debate with an anti-Semitic guy. Okay, we end the total enemies. But uh, 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 I asked him a simple question. But you probably know some Jews. Aren't they, most of them at least, as with many people, <laughs> some of them, many of them are quite nice, normal people. What's your problem? You know, he answered me, that's the beauty of racist logic. Yes, because the essence of the Jews is that they are not only what they are, greedy, evil, but they know how to mask their evil. 
with superficial kindness. And this, which should be an argument against anti-Semitism. For a true anti-Semite, this is what makes them even more dangerous, you know. And this, this logic today is exploding and we have to clarify why. Can I uh, just add, maybe it will be interesting to some readers, that's why what makes me really sad today are what I call unholy alliances. You know what I mean by this? Like where, and I believe here our common sense, I understand what following our common sense should be incompatible, they bring it together. Uh, what do I mean by this? To give you an extreme example which made me infinitely sad. Did, was it in your media about two months ago, I think, Uganda, the African country, the parliament there voted with one or two vote, voted, uh, votes against, large majority, voted to criminalize homosexuality, but not just, you know, one year of prison. If you are caught in homosexual act, it's the only choice is uh, 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 life imprisonment or death penalty. Okay, crazy, you say. But what made me so sad is that, you know how they justified this with anti-colonialism. They said you have to choose European decadent, imperialist, colonizing way of life or, or our authentic African way of life. And it's the same, it makes me so infinitely sad. I don't know how it is in the United States, but it is, I think, with Ukraine. My God, it's a miracle what happens there. I know, I know leftists who are volunteers now on the Freud front, on the Ukrainian side. It's an incredible example of true popular war. It's not just the army, it's ordinary people, uh, organizing local hospitals and so on and so on. But nonetheless, many leftists claim it's not so simple. It serves NATO, NATO uh, arms industry, Russia was provoked and so on and so on. This makes me so sad. It's another of these unholy alliances. And it hurts me. Why? Because Putin is exploiting this. In many third world countries, precisely because Putin presents he, the war as a struggle against Western colonization, they identify with Putin. It's another unholy alliance. And that's what really makes me pessimist today. But again, to understand this mechanism, again, I would say psychoanalysis is needed. Not that these unholy alliances and current political events aren't of the utmost importance, but I want to go back to something you said earlier, because I think it's of immense philosophical importance and something that I don't quite understand because I'm much more well-versed in analytic compared to continental philosophy. But, but sorry to interrupt you, but do you know that there are many analytic philosophers who I I quoted them a lot. I admire them a lot. Uh, for example, Saul Kripke now something went wrong in him disappear. But naming a necessity 
was one of the formative books of my youth. Then another name, it may surprise you. I was in contact with him, but then he was ill, he died. It may surprise you. Donald Davidson, of all people. Then another example. I take, you know, the, the British guy, uh, uh, Bernard Williams, who wrote, he's basically analytic, but he wrote a book called, wonderful book called Moral Luck. Very deep insight of the temporality, how it's not simply I do something. Up to a point, it will be retroactively decided was what I did, moral or not. It gets more complicated, I know, but so again, let me just, but you know what I will now ask No, no, you, no, hold on, hold on. But, this uh, is important. No, no, no. Rhetorical, you don't have to answer. I... I lost a little bit of a contact in the last uh, couple of years. Like I followed that, let's call it pro-continental philosophy trend in analytic philosophy. Even in Hegel studies, for example, what is specific of a guy like uh, like uh, like uh, Robert Brandom is that his reading of Hegel. I don't agree with him, but it's a very well elaborated, beautiful, clear thinking. It's obviously up to a point based on analytic language philosophy, on analytic thinking, and so on. So don't portray me as an opponent of analytic and philosophy. And that is not at all what I was doing. What I was saying is that I personally, even though I'm quite interested in continental philosophy, but I don't know much about it, which is the importance of this question. But so you you spoke a lot about quantum theory and materialism on the one hand, but then on the other hand, Hegel, along with Lacan, is one of your huge heroes. And you've mentioned that German idealism is one of the most important philosophical movements. You think that contemporary philosophy really needs to reclaim it. But I don't totally understand how these two but things... But isn't the irony that, sorry, that, 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 that Robert Brandon is in some sense reclaiming Hegel for some kind of not traditional analytic philosophy, if you put it in this way. That was for me almost an orgasmic moment. When And I will go even further. In United States, you know who is usually in the history of philosophy considered the zero point, the true father, the beginning of analytic philosophy is Carl Sanders Peirce, no? I would have said Frege, but I mean, they're in the same vein. Well, Frege is European and it's different, but you know that Peirce was a Hegelian. He thought he, he was a Hegelian. And uh, what I try to do in my reading of Hegel is precisely dispel, overthrow these big misunderstandings about Hegel is a stupid absolute idealist who thought he knew everything. I think, to put it as provocatively as possible, that Hegel is more materialist than Marx himself. Why? Because in Marx you still have this, let's call it teleology. History moves in a certain direction. We may screw it up, but like history moves towards 
some kind of socialism, communism, and then even Marxists who are not determinists, usually quote Rosa Luxemburg, who said the future will be socialism or barbarism. Now, to this, the 20th century gave us a perfect answer uh, with Stalinism. What if it can be both barbarism and socialism, you know? So what I'm saying is that also based on analytic philosophy, I try to rehabilitate, which may sound crazy, a Hegel which is much more even relativist and so on. I will give you one proof. Everybody likes to quote that Hegel from a uh, 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 preface, I think, not introduction to his philosophy of right, when he says, philosophy is like the oil of Minerva. It takes off at the end of the day. And Hegel explains what he means by this. He says, philosophy is a child of its time. It can only grasp an epoch when its time is running out, when a form of life social forum is under threat, disappearing, philosophy from this distance can grasp it, but that's the surprise. Hegel absolutely prohibits any speculations about future. Hegel says about future, this is not a topic of philosophy, we cannot say anything. Although, incidentally, when he made here and there empirical points about future. He was uncannily correct. For example, in the same, no, sorry, yeah, uh, introduction to the philosophy of history, you know, when he speaks about America, United States, and about Russia, you know what Hegel says? It's not yet that time. The next century, 20th, Hegel wrote this in 1820, will be death. Russian and American. So empirically, he was not an idiot. You know, in what sense is Hegel, for me, the ultimate thinker of uh, contingency? For him, teleology, if you read him closely, doesn't predetermine development. It's more like once a thing happens, it retroactively becomes necessary. I'm not uh, uh, speaking about magic here, but it retroactively creates a narrative of its own necessity. And I think Hegel is consciously doing this. History is for him not necessary. He speaks about the progress of the spirit towards freedom, but this is at his point of history, French Revolution and so on. If you read it from that experience, you can say it all moves towards this. But in some sense, although it gets more ambiguous, everybody is doing this. So again, my reading of Hegel is totally crazy. It's the great thinker of contingency for whom future is totally open. Hegel has horror of any... Hegel would have been horrified by this usual, not even Marxist, Marxist, Marxist more open, Marxist logic of, you know, 
there are stages of history and now we are in a passage from uh, from capitalism to socialism, whatever. No, Hegel would have liked what people, I'm not saying I 100% agree with them, but they are touching something. You know that Janusz Varoufakis, for example, and Joe Didin and others claim that, and I love this theory, I'm not qualified enough to say it's true, but that today capitalism as we know it, liberal global capitalism, is already disappearing and a new form of, of, uh, of, uh, of neo-feudalism is entering. That persons like Jeff Bezos and so on, this is no longer profit. We are, they collectivize some of our commons, shared space, and we are paying rent to them. So I like this theory which then amounts to the fact that we shouldn't be abstractly anti-capitalist because, sorry for use this term for which many leftists will lynch me, but creative small capitalists are also under threat. And I'm not afraid of proposing a kind of a pact against these new oligarchs with this small creative capitalists, whatever, you know. So, you see, this is Fidelianism for me. Future is radically open. We don't know what will happen. But let's say that now there will be, hope not, a third world war, real one. No doubt, then history will be, histories will be written claiming, can't you see, it was all pointing towards this. Let's say it will end up like the Cold War is no doubt histories will be written saying it was like the Cold War. It was all a game, both sides were aware they shouldn't push it too much and so on and so on. I, and now I will make a philosophical point. I think that uh, I would even elevate this to my, let's call it not just in the space of meaning, even nature with quantum theory, ontological openness. You know, like, uh, for example, I always say, what always surprises me is that here I'm the true multiculturalist, not the political correct one. I like how often works of art which refer to another culture from a long time ago like, for example, take Shakespeare. I often repeat this point. For me, the best film version of Hamlet is, in order to, in 1962, Akira Kurosawa did Hamlet. Wonderful title he gave. Uh, 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 Only bad people can sleep well. A wonderful title. Where Tohiro Mifune, of all guys, plays Hamlet, a student who returns from America, from the studies and his uncle uh, uh, married his mother, the same story. And uh, so for me, the true question is not what Shakespeare really meant. What if he didn't know what he meant? What if his work is, as to its meaning, uh, uh, antagonistic and immanently open? So that what if... This historicist question, oh, to understand Shakespeare, you have to know all the details about Elizabethan England and so on, is wrong. 
maybe with a distance, we can better understand uh, uh, Shakespeare than Shakespeare understood himself. Why? Because history is... Do you know my story? Just to conclude, uh, from an introduction, I, I, I often use it, from introduction to... Uh, some introduction to modern philosophy. It's a wonderful way to explain quantum physics, which is why I still, in an old-fashioned way, love it. He takes the examples from video games and says, in video games, you don't have complete reality. Like, you are in a game, you are in a valley, doing fights, whatever, shooting stupid things, then above, there are hills which, where you see some trees. But you cannot go close to the tree and analyze it in detail because that's not programmed, you know. The program goes to, to do it, blah, blah, blah. Okay, my totally crazy idea is that uh, uh, in some sense, the lesson of quantum physics is that that's how our reality is structured. It's not completely programmed. It's not there is reality out there, but it's not again. It's open. It's ontologically open. It's ontologically incomplete. Now I'm not the stupid idealist who grounds the notion of freedom in this, because some guys are doing it. Because wait a minute. Freedom is not the same as contingency, you know. Freedom is a form of necessity. If you say, but even that is not true, true chance, it's determined. If you say, I don't want to decide it, I will leave it to chance, and you throw a coin in the air and so on, this is contingency, even if it's not, it can be. But what I'm saying is that freedom is its own form of necessity, with its own paradoxes and so on. But I like this idea of reality, which is incomplete in itself. So that you cannot even clearly distinguish between Shakespeare in himself, Shakespeare's works in itself, and our readings. No, in some way, our readings bring to the end Shakespeare's work. If you provide a convincing reading of Hamlet, it's, it goes further than Shakespeare, but not simply from the outside, because it fills in what is lacking, what was left open in Shakespeare himself. I, I really like this idea of ontological openness and reality not being completely programmed. It really, it runs head on into our intuitions or the intuition of the proverbial scientist that the world is out there and complete. Yeah, yeah here I, I am not opposed to, opposed to stupid scientists who think that the incompleteness means just the limitation of our knowledge. What if reality is in itself incomplete? You know which I most like in my obscenity? The, the theological version of this, which is wonderful, of this paradox which is this one. Why do we have the quantum sphere where things are not yet ontologically fixed, but wave oscillations and so on? Because God created the world 
for us. And when he was programming it, he thought we will ne never be able to move beyond the atom. So why should God lose time programming all the quantum details? When he but now, as they say, as you say, I think in English, we we caught God with his pants down, as it were. <laughs> we got him, hey, hey, and this is now nice philosophical point. It's from my new book that I'm now finishing. Uh, so not only is for me quantum physics in this incompleteness not subjectivist or theological mind the observer creates reality, but it's more materialist. In what sense? Einstein himself, in his eternal polemics with Niels Bohr, you know, insisted that there must be totally determined, we know the story, objective reality and so on, and she uses the word there, divine. He says, this is something like divine God dimension, this dice. harmony of yeah, and all that. But the lesson of quantum physics is, is not that God is deceiving us, but that God, which is for me simply, I'm not, I don't be, I'm not a believer. The knowledge embodied in our tradition, our common image of reality, is in itself deceived. Like uh, there is more in reality, there are things that do not fit our ordinary everyday perception. All science is about this. Real modern science, that's why I'm for it, beginning with Galileo. I think that till Galileo, science was basically bringing up the notion more or less of our everyday concepts or philosophy, like Aristotle, you know, heavy objects fall down and so on, kind of everyday ontology. Then the first big break was with, I think it was Galileo, no? Who put this idea that an object, if it moves in space without external influence, it's not at peace, but it moves with the same velocity in the same direction and so on. So that the zero state, the, the common sense pre-scientific version is that objects are intrinsically at peace. And then you need something, at least mechanical object, with life it gets complicated. And then we go on and on. Einstein and then quantum physics, we get uh, image, it's not a good term, even image, of reality which simply cannot be translated into our everyday experience of reality. That's for me something incredible about science. So again, science is absolutely not any kind of just one discourse among the others and so on and so on. It is in some sense the greatest thing we have. But I'd, I'd still like to tie this back to Hegel. And so you mentioned earlier Bohr. I mean, you've mentioned him a, a number of times. But earlier you mentioned his being associated with this idea of shut up and calculate. But he's also associated with the Copenhagen interpretation, though this is uh, a bit a bit fuzzy. 
where measurement and other phenomena are observer dependent. And I'm wondering if this is the connection to Hegel and idealism that interests you, where the objects in the world are uh, in, inherently subject dependent. Yeah, but yeah, I know what you are here saying, but you know, what is interesting to note is first that if you are looking, I know a lot about Bohr, if you are looking at an influence there, it's Kant. Bohr, among classical thinkers, not just philosophers, Bohr liked uh, Kant and, in theology, Kierkegaard. These were his true loves, no? And it's obvious why Kant, because by Kant you also have this uh, subjective constitution of reality and so on and so on. But uh, I, I think that uh, uh, we should make with Bohr another Hegelian twist, which means not... You know what Hegel does with Kant is not simply to say, oh, there is reality out there, Kant thought, we cannot get at it, it's no man I'll think in itself, but I, Hegel, absolute knowing I can. No, Hegel's point is something different. It is that what if, because, oh, sorry, Kant's points are antinomists. If we try to understand reality in itself, we get caught in antinomies, that is to say, radical, insolvable contradictions. Hegel's point is rather, why should contradictions, antinomies, be only subjective? Why don't we displace this limit into the thing itself? What if the thing in itself is, in some sense, contradictory? This doesn't mean that there are things out there which are contradictory, Hegel's point would have been another one, and Bohr knows it, that uh, the reason of this uh, 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 relying on measurement and so on is precisely because we are part of the measured reality. We are not outside. This is a very deep philosophical insight of Niels Bohr. He is not saying... We are outside the world, all the world is out there, a thing in itself, we cannot get at it. No, all is complicated because we are part of the world. And precisely because we are part of the world, we cannot pretend that we are not and look at the world from outside. So, now I'm getting tired to conclude. May I say, you use it or not, whatever you want, my favorite dirty joke, but it's not vulgar, it's even a little bit pro-feminist. Nobody will be uh, offended, I hope so. You'll never know today. I read recently a wonderful small vulgar joke about a wife while her husband is out drinking and she thinks the husband will stay all the night with his friends, is in her bed with a lover. Then suddenly they hear some sounds moaning and so on, oh, the husband is coming back. And the lover is in panic. What should they do? Jump through the window, hide in the closet. And his wife said, don't worry. My husband is, I'm sure, so drunk that he will just enter here and drop into bed and just fall asleep 
So you can stay here, sleep some time in peace, then you go. This is what happens. The husband comes, not unaware, just drops down. Then now comes the really Hegelian, ingenious moment. Uh, uh, after half an hour, one hour, the husband nonetheless gets a tiny little bit more sober and awakened and opens his eyes and looks down where their feet are and says to his wife, Darling, am I still so uh, uh, drunk or what? But if, uh, if I see it correctly, there are two, three pairs. There are six feet there. You look, three pairs. What is happening? And now comes the beautiful Bohr Hegelian argument against objectivity. The wife tells him, Darling, yes, you have visions, you are still drunk. Do it. Do an experiment, if you can. Stand up and go at the door and look at the bed, and you will see how it is. And the husband does this and says, yes, you are right, there are only four feet. Look up at you know. Precisely, because he excluded himself, you know. That's the Hegelian Bohr lesson. You don't get the truth by excluding the subject, you know. The problem is to include the subject in. So in some sense, the, the guy was still drunk, but his problem was that he thought he is no longer drunk. You know that, it, again, that's the whole effort of Hegel and also of, my God, intelligent analytic philosophers and so on. How to think reality so that subject is a part of it. Of course, you can do it in an objectivist way, like, uh, I don't know, evolutionism and so on and so on. But the philosophical problem is more complex. Sorry, now I'm slowly, no, 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 slowly... No. That was the, the best... We can go on at some other point. I would like to go on more in detail into all these uh, horrible things. For example, my last story, please, in Trusitorlo. Maybe you heard it because it got pretty popular. Uh, I read somewhere that the Nazis had, this is very, it shocked me when I read about it, had some kind of uh, a simple metal object like to crack the nuts made industrially for concentration camps as a special form of torture. No way. To crack. Yeah. Isn't this horrible? Okay. Then I wanted to check this. Like, so that I will not be accused of invent. So I went to Google and put on ball crashers, crashing testicles. And you know what I got? Some 10 sites today for masochists, they are industrially produced. They cost very nicely two to three hundred dollars. I hope you didn't test them. You know. <laughs> no, no, no. But you put your testicles in and then you can regulate how much uh, your balls are squeezed. Then you keep up at, uh, on the side holes for needles if you want to torture yourself more. This is, I think, the world we live in. That uh, what uh, half a century ago, a little bit more, was a terrifying object of torture. Now you can buy it, it's advertised. And we live in a world where you can do that consensually. But you cannot call somebody a wrong name. That you are suspended. No, 
We live in a crazy yeah, well, world. I'm, I'm figuratively speechless, but that was the best Hegel-Borean joke I could imagine to finish the podcast. And thanks so much, Slavoj. This was absolutely terrific. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.